What up, listener? We wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this Blue Wire podcast. Be sure to show your support to this pod by subscribing and dropping a five-star review on iTunes, a follow on Spotify, or the appropriate dap for any other platform you might be listening on. And if you're enjoying this show, chances are you'll like one of our 75 other sports podcasts. Find more shows you'll love at BlueWirePods.com. Thanks again for listening, and now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Congratulations. You know, you're a Detroit Lion. And when he said that, it was like an awkward moment of silence. And he asked me, he said, aren't you happy to be a Lion? Welcome to episode 28 of the Michael Rothstein Show. I am your host, Michael Rothstein. This podcast is being brought to you by Untuck It, the original button-down shirt actually designed to be worn untucked. That's Untuck It. And we'll start tonight, although I just want to point out before we actually jump into anything My guest tonight, who is Lomas Brown, the Detroit Lions legend. He's the Detroit Lions color commentator right now. He played at Florida, played 18 years in the NFL. It's a longer interview. It's about an hour and 10 minutes, just to warn you going in, but it's really, really compelling stuff. We talk a little bit about how he ended up starting playing football, which is a crazy story. We get into the Lions. We get into some of the present Lions stuff, some of the past Lions stuff, kind of the famous guarantee he made against Philly, which ended up being the last game of his Lions career and how that may have affected the fact that he ended up not coming back the next season. We also get into what it was like to end his career with a Super Bowl win. And he was in New York when 9-11 happened playing for the Giants. We talk a little bit about that towards the end of the show. And that gets really emotional it's a good podcast. It's a, and obviously I'm saying that and it's my show. So I'm obviously going to say that, but it's, it's a podcast. I think you'll enjoy. I think you'll get something out of it and you really should learn something too. And we hit on things for present lions fans, past lions fans and general fans of the NFL as well. I, I think you'll really, really get something out of it. But before that, we'll start tonight with our BetOnline.ag take of the week. BetOnline.ag is your online sportsbook expert. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE. That's all one word for a 50% welcome bonus. And the take of the week has to do with Darius Slay. We talked about him a little bit in the last podcast and what the Lions should do with him. Keep him, extend him, let him play out his contract, trade him. Many options, but also actually not that many options if you really, really think about it. Because beyond being one of their most costly players, Darius Slay is also... Detroit's best defensive player. And we'll get into this a little bit with Lomas Brown as well. But before that, I've got my thoughts. And Slay, who's never had a loss of words on social media or when he talks to the media, gave a little bit of insight into what he might be looking for when a reporter wrote a story about what Slay might be worth contract-wise. The reporter said Slay should be in the $15 to $16 million range in his next deal. Not bad money by any stretch of the imagination, but also not too much more money than the top corner contracts at the moment. To which Slay responded, y'all too num- you're all- I'm sorry, y'all number too low, LOL. This was, of course, on Twitter. 
which means Slay believes he's worth more than that, possibly a lot more than that. And frankly, he's probably right. Yeah, he'll be 30, which is a dangerous age in the life of a receiver or a cornerback, but Slay has proven year over year that he has been worth the money, playing at a Pro Bowl level or higher at an All-Pro level. Considering Detroit's myriad defensive problems, including at the corner opposite Slay, creating another hole by trading him would seem counterproductive for a team wanting to and needing to win and improve now. And yes, that would be... The same, even if they take Jeffrey Okuda in the first round of this year's draft at number three or number five or number six or wherever they end up picking, because cornerbacks as rookies, generally you can't really trust them all that much. And the Lions need as many trustworthy players as they can get, because if they moved on from Slay, they would have two new starters at corner, potentially both of them with little to no experience if that other starter is Amani Uwarie. And the NFL, that's one easy way to get beat. So the options for the Lions are simple. Pay Slay and try to structure the deal fairly for both sides with a get-out option on the back end that is easy for the team to kind of cut bait if Darius doesn't play that well anymore or let him play out the final year of his contract with the understanding you're likely to lose him or potentially franchise tagging him after the 2020 season. Those options may not be palatable to Slay and honestly, they may not be palatable to the Lions either, but keeping Slay would make a lot more sense than getting rid of him at this point, considering what the Lions have and what they don't. So there you have it, the betonline.ag take of the week. Remember to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for your 50% welcome bonus at betonline.ag. We'll be back right after this short break with our guest, Detroit Lions offensive tackle Lomas Brown. Our guest tonight played for the Lions from 1985 to 1995, made seven Pro Bowls and lasted 18 years in the NFL, going out with a Super Bowl victory in 2002 as a member of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now you can hear him every Sunday in the fall as the color analyst for Detroit Lions games on the radio. Lomas Brown, welcome to the Michael Rothstein Show. Oh, thank you, Michael. Hey, you made the big fella sound important there. I like that. I like it. Well, uh, no, all right, but in all seriousness, let's let's kind of start here too. You played 18 years in the NFL. You rarely see non-quarterbacks or non-Jason Hansen type people play more than 10. What was that like to play 18 years? And was there a point where you're like, "Whoa, I'm I'm playing a ton." Yeah, you know, it, it, Jay, I'm going to tell you, it went fast. It, it really did. And I, I remember my rookie year, Leonard Thompson, wide receiver for the Detroit Lions. He was in his 12th year. And I always remember him coming up to, to me and telling me as a rookie, he said, man, he said, enjoy it because it's going to go by fast. And when he told me that, it didn't sink in. But, man, as the years went on, it really did. And. You know, my just my desire to want to play the game and stay in the game because the game had been so good to me. You know, I really didn't want to leave, but like they say, Father Time is always undefeated. And you kind of know 
when it's your time to move on to another profession. The guys are getting bigger, stronger, and faster. And you just know. It just sets in. And football is an unforgiving game, as you know. So it'll definitely let you know when it's time to walk away. But I enjoyed it. It gave me everything that I have today. And I was privileged to play in the NFL for 18 years. All right. So like you said, father time undefeated. We use oh, yeah. that. We use that all the time. But was there a point before year 18 where you were like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to tell you my lowest time was when I got cut. But first time I ever been cut in my 15th year. And I was cut by the expansion Cleveland Browns. And I think that was probably one of my lowest professional points of my career because, you know, first of all, they were an expansion team. Um, and basically, you know, at that point, I thought I was at the point at the end of my career, you know, being about 35 years old, I thought time had run this course on me. But, you know, the Giants called me about 30 minutes later after I got cut by Cleveland, and it kind of rejuvenated me. And my one of my old coaches, Jim Fossil, was there with the Giants, and he convinced me to come in. And, you know, I went in, and that was the first Super Bowl that I got to, even though we didn't win the Super Bowl. That was the first one I got to in my 16th year and was just fortunate to go back two more years later with Tampa Bay and win it. It's funny you mentioned that because I was going to hit on that later, but let's let's jump into it a little bit now. You play 15 years for, other than a couple of the Lions teams and maybe one of those Cardinals teams, some pretty bad football teams. And then, <laughs> I, let's just be real. I mean, that's what they you're were. You're right. No, you're right. That's why I'm laughing, Michael, because you're right. <laughs> and, and then two of your last three years, you end up in the Super Bowl, and you leave the game – you know, John Elway style, kind of, I mean, you weren't starting then, but you're like, I went to Super Bowl, I'm out. Like, what was that like that first year in New York? Are you just like, whoa, like this is a, what, what is this winning thing? Like, how do you approach that? You exactly right. Because think about it. When I left Detroit and signed with the Arizona Cardinals, man, Arizona was probably just as bad or maybe worse than Detroit was with some of the rules they had. And, you know, man, Mike, I'm telling you, when I first got to Arizona, they would give you one jock strap, one pair of socks, one T-shirt, and one pair of shorts. And that was supposed to last you the whole season. And if you needed anything else, another pair of socks or whatever, they would take it out of your paycheck. And it was just, you know, stuff like that when I got to Arizona. So, like I say, some of the things in Arizona was worse. But when I got to uh, New York, oh, my goodness. It was like, man, the gods have smiled upon me because, I mean, things were just totally different. You know, it was the first place that really kind of had a kitchen, you know, where they actually kind of fed the guys and, you know, it was just, you know, the early part of the 2000s was coming in. It was just a first-class organization that was used to winning, and they knew how to treat the players. They knew how to treat their staff. It was just totally different how they were run. And I think that was one of the reasons why when I won the Super Bowl, the, I'm sorry, when I won the NFC Championship game with the Giants, the first people I thought about was Barry Sanders. and. Jerry Ball and Kevin Glover and Chris Spielman 
and Benny Blaze, those guys I played with that never got the opportunity to get to a Super Bowl. And here I am, I got an opportunity to go to one with a first-class uh, organization. So it was awesome, man. It was awesome, Mike. Did you call those guys after you won the NFC title game, or did they reach out to you? Obviously, this was like very, very early cell phone days type. So, <laughs> you know, like, did they like, and not really even email, did they like send you handwritten letters? Did they call you on the phone? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's how they communicated for the most part. It was through phone, but you're right. It's not as instant as it is now. So, you know, it was a few days later, but man, I tell you what, man, that week, preparing for the Super Bowl, man, I got so many calls that I let my voicemail full up on my, not only my cell phone, but my, um, my, um, my hotel room phone too, because, you know, again, we went back to Florida where I'm from Miami and the game was in Tampa. So I just had a whole bunch of well wishes, but I was trying to concentrate and get ready for the game. But that was one thing I remember, man. A lot of people reach out to you. When you reach that pinnacle of the game, get to a Super Bowl, man, you'll hear from people you hadn't heard from in years, Michael. I'm talking about in years because you're in the spotlight now. Who is the most strange or surprising person that you heard from that you're like, what? Wow, that's a great question there. Probably. Hmm. You know what? It's a crazy quote. It's kind of crazy, but it was actually a stewardess that uh, served us early in our career on the plane. She was actually friends with Wilt Chamberlain and Fred the William Hammerson. That was the first time uh, Fred the William, I think it's, yeah, you know, the hammer, Fred Williamson, the hammer. He was friends with them. And that's the first time I ever really crossed the celebrity thing. You know what I'm saying? With knowing, I'm talking about big time celebrity. So, you know, I got a shout out from her. It wasn't directly from Wilmington, but she was hanging out with them while she gave me a shout out. So, you know, I kind of had to say that was probably one of the strangest things before Wilt Chamberlain and them left this earth. <laughs> I'm assuming know, you, you, you never met Wilt, right? Like that no, didn't lead to like. I wish I could have met him, man. And man, this dude, but you know, he was just on another level, Michael. He was just on another level, man. You know, those guys just was on a different level than I was. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. And so when you're playing like later and on in your career, like maybe because up until your last season in the league, like you started every game you played but one. And there was a game in 95 with the Lions that you didn't start. Right. Like, how did you keep your body going? Because as we know, like injuries happen in the NFL to everyone, even kickers and punters. Yes, you're right. Well, for me, it, it has always been a sense of pride to play. That that you know, we you didn't show weakness. You know, that's how I was brought up in the SEC. That's how I was brought up down south in Miami playing high school ball down there. You know, and for me, you know, you never show the weakness or you never show pain. You 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 know, you never tried to show that. So believe me, Mike, I'm gonna tell you a lot of that was masked. It was a lot of it was masked. Uh, I mean, to get through an NFL season, not only do you have to be lucky, but the, again, you're going to be on painkillers. 
you know, you're going to have to do different things to your body to make it through. Each and every year, I was finding different ways of trying to recoup, trying to uh, get some of the lactic acid and some of the built-up hits and stuff out of my body so my body could re, uh, recoup. And I, I tell you, the only year, the one year that I really couldn't do it was after we went to the Super Bowl with the Giants in 2000 and lost that game. Because, you know, of, of course, you know, it's the first weekend in February. So we were done after the game. We reported back to camp. I'm sorry, back to lifting um, at the end of March. So I only had from the, the Super Bowl game to the end of March before I had to start lifting again. And as you know, you go from lifting into OTAs and OTAs right into mini camps. And mini camps, you go right into training camp. So that's how my schedule was. So my body never got an opportunity to recover in my 16th year when I was with the Giants. But there's different things like that that have to occur and things like that that have to happen for you for you to be ready to make it through another season, especially when you start talking about year 15, year 16, year 17, and on. Those are things that have to happen yearly for you to make it, and you got to be lucky, too. Don't forget, luck plays a lot in this game, too. Since you mentioned that, like you said, there was such that short window. Had you won the Super Bowl with the Giants, would you have walked away then? <sighs> you know, oh, that's a great question. I'm going to say no, uh, and the reason why I'm going to say no, and that, that's just a great question, is because I did have a two-year deal with them, um, and I was always the type to want to try to finish my deal out with them. So I think I might have finished my deal out with them. Now, if I would have went to Tampa, that might have been a different story. But I think I might have finished out my deal with the Giants. Okay, yeah, I was just wondering because that's one of those things that guys always say kind of when they get later in their careers. Oh, if I win, I'm done. I'm walking yeah. away. But you know what else they say too when they win, just like Patrick Mahomes and them were saying, we'll be back next year. We'll be right back up here. And you you think that because your adrenaline that's running so high when you win it. You, I was saying the same thing. Look, I was saying that after we won the Super Bowl with Coach Rudy. Here I am, 39 years old in my 18th year, talking about, yeah, Coach, I'm ready to come back for two more years. He's sitting on the bus after the game, after the Super Bowl, talking about Lomas. I want to resign you for another two years. And I'm sitting on here talking about, yeah, Coach, I think I could do it. Nothing but adrenaline. That's all that was running at that time. I was going to say, so how quickly after you got off the bus and maybe off the plane did you say, <laughs> well... Yeah, right. It, <laughs> it took a while for me. It, it did. I didn't do it because I really didn't file my official papers for about three years afterwards. But I kind of know. Like I say, your body kind of tells you. You kind of know. And then you don't put in that time that you need to put in to prepare yourself during the all season. You see yourself maybe running one less sprint or, you know, maybe I'll skip going to the gym today and try to make it up tomorrow. And you don't make it up the next day. You know, when you start doing little things like that or this business meeting is a little bit more important. Maybe I go do this business meeting instead of working out at 10 o'clock like I'm supposed to. When things like that start happening, then you know, you know, you kind of, you kind of own the way out the game. We'll be right back, right after this. 
ever see an untucked button-down? They look bad. Why? Because they weren't meant to be worn that way. Thankfully, there's Untuck It, the original button-down shirt actually designed to be worn untucked. No matter your size or shape, Untuck It shirts always fall at the perfect untucked length. With more than 50 fit combinations, Untuck It shirts look great on tall, short, slim, and athletic guys of all ages, including creeping toward middle-aged people like me. You can choose from styles like wrinkle-free button-downs, super soft flannels, outerwear, and more. With Untuck It, your shirts will never look baggy, bulgy, too long, or too big again. And their website is so easy to use, they even have a page devoted to helping you find your best fit. So whether you're shopping for the perfect gift or just trying to craft a smart, relaxed style of your own, Untuck It is the way to go. Visit untuckit.com and use the code BLUE for 20% off at checkout. That's U-N-T-U-C-K-I-T.com and promo code BLUE for 20% off. Now, back to our show. Like we're ta- so we're talking about the Super Bowl here. You mentioned Patrick Mahomes. Let's flip it a little bit to a team that's never been to the Super Bowl that both of you, both you and I, are around a lot, which <laughs> are the Lions. And it, yes. it's a lot of these podcasts. I end up doing that type of transition, by the way, because we end up talking about like I had someone on last week who covered the Super Bowl, and we were talking about it, and then it's like, hey, by the way, this thing. Uh, yeah, you, you see them play every Sunday. Right. Like, like I do, where did it go? Where has it gone wrong? You think the last couple of years? Well, okay. So the first thing to me is, and I'm just going off my experience, Michael is they don't have strong leadership in the locker room. They, they just don't, you know, when I was here and I hate to keep going back to the nineties, but you know, and that, and that's a shame because that's probably the most successful time as I error. And we didn't do anything. I keep telling people they identify with us in the nineties and we didn't do anything. We won one playoff game. That was it. But everybody just thinks we're, you know, we're, we're, that makes the, sh- the sun rises in the morning, but it's not like that. But I, I just think they just don't have the leadership the strong leadership and enough leadership in the locker room right now. When we were there, man, you talk about guys like Chris Spielman, Jerry Ball, you know, Benny Blades. You talk about all these guys that would get up in your face. Of course, you know, Barry was a quiet guy. Barry didn't lead like that way. And that's fine because we had enough other guys in the locker room that that led where Barry didn't have to say nothing. Barry just went out and did what he did on the field. But they don't have that over there. I mean, if you think about it, Matthew is a quiet leader. When Calvin was there, he was a quiet leader. Point to me right now on that team. Who would you consider a leader on that team? I mean, who that like right now, I would, you know, outside of Matthew, and like I say, that kind of comes with the quarterback title. You don't have anybody on that team that I think is a strong leader or somebody that can rally the troops or you don't have enough guys on that team that can do that. So 
Michael, when things start going bad in the locker room or going bad out there on the field, you don't have enough guys in the locker room to smooth the water out. And that's what happened. You go through all those troubling times because you know it's going to be ups and downs during the season, but you got to have enough guys in that locker room to smooth it out. We had that back in the lot in the 90s. We had that. We just didn't have a lead, a quarterback. That's what we needed back in the 90s. If we'd have had a Matthew Stafford, he wouldn't have had to be a loud guy. He could have been the quiet leader that he is now. But with the talent that he had, we could have did some things with him. So that's the one thing that jumps off to me about these guys that they don't have enough leaders in that locker room. And I know that's what Coach Patricia is trying to do. I know he's trying to get that done. But that's been hurting them to me the last two years. That's what's been killing them. And now the guys that you thought were leaders in the locker room, they're no longer there. So it's hard to navigate a locker room. It's hard to know the pulse of the locker room when you don't have leaders down there that can tell a coach or let a coach know that, hey, this is going on, this needs to be addressed, or this needs to be talked about in front of the whole team. Do you think some of that is because some of the guys that Patricia's brought in, like Trey Flowers, like Devon Kennard, are still newer? Or do you think it's just not in maybe their – because both those guys also were really quiet guys. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So, or is it more Michael. that they're just quiet and like exactly. fiery guys like Quandre are – Gone. There you go. Exactly. You got to have a mixture of those guys in the locker room. You're absolutely right. Good players you named off, but those guys, I watch them. I watch them and watch in the locker room. And those are not those are not outspoken guys. They just not. That's just not their temperament. And that's all right, you know. But you got to have those guys in there, man. That believe me. Look, when when I used to mess up on the field. When I was walking to the sideline, I wasn't nervous about Wayne Fonts or any of the assistant coaches. They, they're not the ones that had me nervous. I was nervous about Spielman getting in my face. I was nervous about Jerry Ball getting up in my face and saying something to me. That's who I was more nervous about saying something to me when I was walking off the sideline than a Wayne Fonts or my, my position coach. And that's how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be more accountable to the guys that you're on the field with. And it's just not like that with these guys right now. Do you think that's NFL-wide, or do you think that's just kind of with this? That great, great question. <laughs> that's a great question. I think it's wide, but I see it more here. You know, I think it's wide, but I see it more here. I see it more here. Um, but I do think it's league-wide. I think it's just the newer guys now. They just do things a different way now, you know, where they don't get together like we used to. We used to go out and hang out and do different things like that. Now the norm is for all these guys to go their own separate way. So it's a lot of things that are different now from how it was with us. So how do you think they get it right? Well, to me, I, so to me, for them to get that, I think to get this thing right, first of all, to me, they got to start embracing what they have on the inside. So what I'm saying by that is, and this, this has been the whole time. I've been here since 85 when they drafted me. You got to start appreciating the people that you have right here on the inside first before you start looking out outward. 
And to me, so I'll take an example. My example is the Darius Slay situation. So to me, with Slay, okay, you can't, I don't know how you keep getting better letting your good players go. I just don't see that. I don't see how you keep getting better if you let your good players go. So to me, they need to embrace Darius wanting to be a lion. They need to try to, hell, they need to try to recruit him to stay here. You know, they need to turn around and recruit him like you go out and you recruit some of the guys that you're trying to bring in as free agents. You can't, how are you going to bring guys in here if guys are looking from the outside and guys here aren't happy? They, you know, they look and they see guys getting traded. They hear that Darius Slate isn't happy in Detroit. If I'm a free agent, why would I even – the only way I would look at Detroit right now as a free agent is if money. It's strictly money. It would strictly come down to money for Detroit with me. They couldn't sell me on nothing else but money, you know, if I'm a free agent. And they have to know that. They have to know that. So you got to start taking care of the people you got in-house making them want to be here or feel like they want to be here so you can start getting some of the guys here that you need here to turn this thing around. You can't keep overpaying, Michael, and that's what we've been doing. Trey Flowers. You got Rick Wagner, right? Wasn't he the highest-paid free agent offensive lineman when they signed him? You know, At Trey, least right tackle, yeah. Yeah, $90 million for Trey. You can't keep going out there and that's your only draw to bring guys here is that you're going to pay them because guys, they're like hired assassins there. They don't have no loyalty to the Lions. They just come in here to make their money. That's how they're going to look at it. So their loyalty isn't with the Lions. It's with the money right now. And that has to change. That, that definitely has to change if you're going to attract guys here that you need to turn this program around. Kind of just playing devil's advocate here a little bit. Doesn't that really have to change, though, by drafting well and building that up where a guy like Darius has been here for five, six, seven years, so he wants to be here because he's made a life here versus, you know, your free agency guys? Because not every guy is going to be Glover. Right. You're exactly right. But again, you know, you got to make guys want to stay here. I mean, think about last year with Darius. I mean, everything pointed towards them not wanting him. You know, even even if you shop a guy, that's fine because guys know it's business. But then again, after you shop a guy and the guy doesn't get traded from the team, to me as a team, I bring that guy upstairs and I explain what went on. You know, I let him know, yeah, I put you out there to see what type of what we could get for you and everything. Um, no offers came through that we really like. Now we want to keep you here. We feel that we could build around you. We got this uh, great cornerback, Jeff Okuda, that's coming that we feel we could get him, match him up with you on the other side of the field until we bring in another guy to help rush the passer. We want to strengthen our secondary. These is, I mean, again, they've never done that. They, they didn't do stuff like that with a Barry Sanders. They don't do stuff like that as an organization. And sometimes, to me, when you talk about your best players, you need to include them in on things like that to let them know because they're going to be your biggest advocate out here. 
slays at the Pro Bowl. You want him talking good to some of them guys at the Pro Bowl. You want him right now during the offseason to be saying good things about the team. Not that, man, I don't know if I'm going back there. Man, I don't want to go back there. Let another team offer me this and that. I'm going there. You know, you don't want nobody out there right now doing that, but that's what they got right now. So, again, things like that, they are little things in people's eyes, but they're big things to players. It seems like they were close to having that, not to make that Caldwell-Patricia comparison like so many people have made, but it seems like they were close to having that when Caldwell was here because guys wanted to play for him, and, and I think Glover was such a good example of that. Uh, and even kind of a Reggie Bush for a little bit and, and some yes. of the other, and, and a Matt Prater. I mean, it's a kicker, but still where they're like, hey, look, they signed me and they treat me well. Exactly. Exactly. And you, and again, we weren't overpaying for free agents to come in here. I don't think we were. Maybe I'm wrong, Michael, but I'm telling we, uh, I mean, we're really overpaying, but we have to right now. They, they, you have to. That's the only way you're gonna win a win a bid war. You're gonna have to go above and beyond. Because if it's close, if the dollars are close with another team in the Lions, I'm going to the other team. I'm just letting you know. I mean, you know, the tradition isn't good here, you know, not since the 50s. So we don't really have a tradition since the 50s here. If you're looking from the outside in, you think it's cold here in Detroit. You hear about the murders here in Detroit. You hear that, you know, Detroit had to file for bankruptcy. Think about how everybody on the outside perceives Detroit. You know, it's not in a positive light. You know, the sports teams, all the sports teams are suffering there. The Lions haven't done anything. Oh, they bickering with Calvin Johnson and Barry Sanders walked away. And, you know, man, it's like, man, you know, it's, I'm telling you, it's a lot. But if they, you got to think about things like this. So one question about the future before we delve into the past, because you mentioned them. So are you very solidly in the they should take Jeffrey Okuda camp? Because that's such a big discussion right now with the draft, whether it's Okuda or Isaiah Simmons or Derek Brown or trade back or if Ch- I mean, I personally, I think if Chase Young's there, they need to like sprint to the podium and yes, take him. Yes, but but yes. Th- that scenario doesn't happen. Is Okuda, you think, the place where they need to go? Well, they, you know, if they don't go with the obvious, which everybody's been talking about, so you still think they got the everything's good at the quarterback position? Me? I mean, I just can't see them going that route considering they have to win next year. I think if it's a first, to me, if it's, a coach in his first year, a coach in his second year, maybe you take Tua and you kind of turn it into an Alex Smith, Patrick Mahomes situation. But if you're Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia, are you wasting the number three pick on a guy that you might never coach in a game? If I'm the number, I just, okay, so you, you're going to keep Matthew there. Yes, I would, keep, you, I would keep him. Right, because it, right. I'm saying that too. I'm not letting Matthew go. But I, my, what I'm asking you, Michael, is, Jeff Okuda, is he a third pick in the draft? Is a defensive back a third? I know Deion was. I know Deion Sanders was worth it. But is he the third pick in the draft? I think so. I mean, he's pro- try- truthfully, he probably looks better as the fifth pick in the draft. Because if you trade down and get an extra pick with, my, say, Miami, which is obviously a popular 
bit of conversation right now. I think he looks better as the fifth pick than the third, but anybody will look better as the fifth pick than the third. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's, that's just my only thing. You know what I'm saying? I'm just – and I'm, I got to look at the future. You know, I, you know, and I know I, I'm, I'm with you. I know what coaching them probably going to do. Like you said, go with the DB. But if I'm an organization, I got to look down the line. And if they say that two is a generational guy, and if I could let him sit on my bench for two years and heal and learn from one of the best under Matthew Stafford, like I said, that's what, you know, as an organization, I got to look at that, but I, I, I see perfectly what you're saying with Bob Quinn and Coach Patricia. They don't have a year or two. They got to win now. So with that being in place, yeah, I like the Jeff Okuda call right now. But yeah. you still got to look at the future, though. Oh, no, there's no doubt. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest debatable questions over the next month and a half to two months before everything gets answered in late April. And it's funny that the conversation that we're having is Miami or Detroit potentially because you grew up in Miami. Yes. Uh, what was it like growing up in Miami for you? Man, it was totally different than how it is now because I tell people South Beach wasn't South Beach in Miami like it is now. South Beach was older, retired people over there, and they, they only discriminated against the young. They, they discriminated. If you were young, they didn't want you over there, period. It wasn't because you didn't have to be black, white, or any other thing. As long as you was young, they didn't want you over at South Beach because, like I say, it was just older, retired people over there. So it was totally different than how it was now. But back then in the day, football was everything. Football in Miami, I'm telling you, man, that, that's all you eat, breathe, and sleep football down in Miami. And it was that way growing up. Even though I didn't participate in football, I didn't start till my 10th grade year in high school because, you know, I just didn't, I wasn't really interested in it like my brother and a lot of my friends were. But that's all they did. I remember people used to gamble on you know, the high school jamborees we used to have. And they would gamble on, you know, you have hardcore drug dealers and, and gamblers gambling on our youth uh, football. But it was a way of life. That's what it was. And the thing about football down there, you could play it year-round. Basically, you, you could just pick up a ball, go out in the street, because we used to do a lot of that. And you could play year-round. So, you know, it was just – you was just bred to play football down there. Now, it wasn't big. UM didn't get big till you seen that documentary called The U. So, most of my life growing up down in Miami, the University of Miami wasn't big. But once they got Howard Snellenberger down there, that's when they became big because, like he said in that in the 30 for 30, that's when they started coming to the, to the neighborhood, coming in our neck of the woods and started recruiting us. Before then, they weren't recruiting in our parts of Miami, but Coach Snellenberger started doing that, and that's when the whole perception and everything of the U changed. But for me, I needed a break from Miami, so that's why I went five hours up the road to the University of Florida because I just wanted to get out of Miami, you know, start running with the wrong group of guys down there. So I kind of needed a change of pace and just for me to be five hours away from that guy, those guys, that was enough change of pace for me. So 
it worked out well for me because other than that, I was going to the University of Miami. My dad was so upset with me that he didn't sign my scholarship because I went to the University of Florida because he thought for sure I was going to become a University of Miami hurricane. But it was wonderful, Michael. Wait, so how – okay, so I have a couple of questions from that. How uh-huh. did you get – so how did you get him to sign the scholarship or did someone did, else sign it? it? He didn't. If you looked at my scholarship today, the only signature on there is my mom's signature. My dad refused to sign it because Coach Snellenberger had him. What happened was the last game of my senior year, my dad had a heart attack, so he became disabled. So, you know, he was in the hospital a lot. So Coach Snellenberger, again, you seen the 30 for 30. Yeah. I'm telling you, Michael, it was unbelievable how they recruited us. I'm talking about it was like the mafia came there. I'm going to tell you, like, every day, they were either at my high school or they was at the house. I'm talking about every day. I, I was ducking them. You, I was hiding from them because that's how Coach Snellenberger, he sent them guys in there. And they was like pit bulls, man. Every day, man, Lomas, are you signing with us? We got this, that. I'm like, oh, my God, man. They were so persistent. Even Coach Snellenberger, he was going to the hospital visiting my dad almost every day. So he had my dad hook, line, and sinker. So, like I say, I think it was a shock to all of them, um, especially my dad when I said I was going to Florida. But I just knew, like I told you, I started running with the wrong group of guys down there, started doing things I shouldn't have been doing. So I knew I had to get out of Miami. I had to get away from them guys. So that's one of the reasons. That's really the biggest reason that I went to the University of Florida. Dad and my dad having a heart attack, uh, I wanted to stay closer to. If, if your dad had not had the heart attack, would you have gone somewhere even further away, you think? Yes, I was going to Pittsburgh. Me and Bill Frelick took our official visits there together. So we could have been like bookends. I love Pittsburgh. I, when I went and took my visit there, even though it was cold as all, man, it was the coldest I had ever been, you know, born and raised in Miami. So that was the coldest. Man, I didn't even have an overcoat. The recruiter had to give bring me, give me his overcoat because I never had one because I grew up in Miami. But, man, I fell in love with the University of Pittsburgh when I went there because it was like a city within a city. And I just loved it. And like I say, me and Bill Frelick took our official visits the same time. We were there the same time. And I was going to sign there. And like I say, my dad had the heart attack. And I just knew I needed to stay close to the home. That's the only reason I didn't sign with the University of Pittsburgh. So you're getting all these offers and you've been playing football for approximately four seconds. Like, when do you realize? (laughs) Well, but seriously, like, when do you realize, okay, I can maybe go to college with this or more? Was that part of why you started playing or? No, it was. uh, So what happened was. I, I was in the band, Michael. I was good. Trombone. I was a trombone player. I got up to, to the second seat of the trombones. So the first day of high school, I went in, signed up for my classes. I came out the auditorium. Somebody was like, hey. So I turned around, and I didn't know that was the principal, but it was the principal of the school. 
So he called me over to him and he was like, did you sign up for varsity sports? And I was like, no, I don't even know what that is. So he just grabbed me by the arm and took me back in the auditorium and he signed me up for varsity sports. So I'm like, I'm wondering what this is. So it just so happened to be the last period of the day. Come to find out, he signed me up for football. So I'm like, oh my goodness. So, you know, I was always the type of person where I didn't like to let people down. I'm, I'm still kind of like that today, but you know, this world will make you tough. It'll toughen you up. But I was always like that. So I would do things that I didn't want to do because I didn't want to let the person down. So I'm like, man. So I went out there because I didn't want to let the principal down. So I went out there and went out there day one, went out there day two, went out there day three. And like they say, the rest is history, man. It just, you know, things just worked out. And, I, and before that man passed, every time I would go to high school, I would thank him. Because if it wasn't for him, man, I wouldn't have played football. Because he took me back in there and signed me up. It was no way I was playing. Because I thought them dudes was crazy. I'm like, man, I'm not getting out there and getting hit by these guys and stuff. So I was going to be, on a, be, like I say, the biggest trombone player in America. I would have been him right there. Would you have played any other sports? Or were you legitimately like, I am all about trombone and that's it? And do you still play yeah, trombone? I, mean, <laughs> I tried basketball. And I was pretty good at basketball. I wasn't too bad. I was more of a rebounder in basketball than anything else. You know what I'm saying? My career high was I, I pulled down 26 in one game. You know, so that was – I was more of a rebounder. So I know – and I wasn't getting that much taller. You know, I was probably – like Charles Barkley size, I'll tell you what, him, Mike, I know I just jumped subjects, but I got a chance to see him and, and Dominique Wilkins in college. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man, that's, that's awesome. all I would say, man. The human highlight film and, and, and the round mound, the rebound back in college, man, Charles was 300 pounds and was jumping out the gym. You ain't never seen a big man jump like he could jump back at the University of Auburn, man. It was just something, man. But anyway, I'm sorry. I digress. I'm no, sorry. that's fine. I could talk about yeah. college. I could talk about that. for. Oh. I mean, that's because that's, I mean, I'm a little younger than you. That was like my growing up was Barkley and Dominique Wilkins and oh. MJ. Like that was, that was my NBA. Like, oh my like, God. Oh my, and I'm a basketball guy at heart. Like that. Oh man. I. Oh my God, man. Yeah, I, I saw. I saw the rifleman, Chuck Person. Uh, man, I've seen so many good guys in the SEC that used to come to Florida. You know, to play. I'm just forgetting a lot of guys, but you know, I played with Vernon Maxwell. He was one of my best friends, Mad Max. And you hear our guys talk about him, revered him while he was in the league. And everything, but yeah, man, it was just, I, it was awesome, man, to be able to see that and you know go to college and experience that. It was awesome. Wait, so were you in Vernon tight before college? Or? Oh yeah, that oh, was really? uh, what? No, at college. Oh, at college. Got, okay, it's yeah, in Florida. Yeah, yeah, that's my guy. I took care of Vernon, man, this last couple of years because I was two years um, older than him. So, you know, you come back and, you know, you, you take care of the younger guys while they're there in school. So he was one of my guys, man. Mad Max, Vernon Maxwell. Yeah. So when do you, when you're at Florida, 
when do you realize like you could be a first rounder, a top 10 pick? Like, does that so, hit you? Well, it, I found out my junior year. So at the end of my sophomore year, an agent came in and they, he had rankings of where we were ranked at. And I seen at the end of my uh, junior year, I was the 83rd ranked player where they had me ranked at. So that was the first time I ever had a glimpse or idea of where I was, you know, nationally or with the pros. You know, I didn't know anything about the grades. So when he sh- when he told me you were graded as the 83rd person, or I guess back then that might have been third round, I'm not sure, um, somewhere. So then that gave me the motivation for my senior year that, hey, man, if I work, you know, I could get this up, and that that's what I did. You know, my senior year, uh, like I said, I just went to work, and, you know, everything just worked out to where, you know, the, the Lions ended up drafting me. <laughs> so, so when that happens, when the Lions take you, had you, A, ever been to Detroit before, and B, what's, no, the, what's that like no. when you get here? Okay, so I'm going to tell you the crazy part, and I don't know why the Lions do this. I had no contact with the Lions until they drafted two picks before they drafted me. That's the first time I heard Detroit, Detroit anything had come up. Two picks before they drafted me, Darren Rodgers called and said that, you know, if if the Indianapolis Colts takes Dwayne Bickett and if Minnesota Vikings take Chris Dolman, we're going to take you with the seventh pick in the draft. And I'm sitting there like, what in the world? Where did Detroit come from? Never, nothing, Michael, nothing about Detroit. No workouts, hadn't talked to nobody, nothing. Detroit name hadn't come up a possibly, nothing about Detroit. So lo and behold, Indianapolis selected Dwayne Bickett. Uh, Minnesota took Chris Dolman. Darryl Rogers was on the phone with me, and he was like, congratulations, you know, you're a Detroit Lion. And when he said that, it was like I was quiet. It was like a moment. It was like an awkward moment of silence. And he asked me, he said, aren't you happy to be a Lion? And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. But it was more stunned that Detroit drafted me and I'm trying to figure out Detroit. I've never been up there. Only thing I know about Detroit is they make cars and it's cold up there. And back in the 80s, I think they had they were the murder capital back then. That's all I knew about Detroit, man. And that that's how I ended up there. But I don't know why, again, I had no idea to talk to nobody from Detroit till two picks before they drafted me. So, okay, so they take you, right? You get up here. What's that like when you get here? When I get here, again, the only good thing for me getting here was that James Jones, you know, a fullback, was already here. Because, you know, I blocked for James for two years at Florida. So they had drafted him two years earlier. So I had a sense of comfort with James. He was the first one to meet me when they pulled, when they pulled me up at the Silverdome when I got out. He was like one of the first people to greet me. So right then, that was a little sense of comfort. But, you know, here I am, a Southern boy. You know, like I say, the farthest north I had ever been was to Kentucky to play a game. We had played a game 
um, in Kentucky. So I was unfamiliar with the, the North and how things work up there and just different things. So it was scary. It was scary. And then the other thing that was kind of discouraging really at first was that you know that by being the sixth pick in the draft, you come into a team that wasn't very successful. I mean, they had won, I think the Lions had won four games the year before they picked me and Kevin Glover. So we knew we were coming to a team that hadn't been successful. So we knew it was going to be a long haul with that, trying to turn things around. We just didn't know how bad it had been because I had no history on Detroit because I didn't know anything about Detroit because I didn't think Detroit was going to draft me. The teams that talked to me were Philadelphia, Green Bay talked to me, Cleveland talked to me, and I think it was one or two, I think, one or two other teams. Those were the teams I was concentrating on. Like I say, Detroit just came out the blue. So, okay, so you're here first three, four years, not going all that well. Then you draft this guy from Oklahoma State who yes. ends, up being, ends up being all right. Yes, man. And, and, and to be honest with you, my first year, 85, we actually went seven and nine and beat the, the two of the defending. Uh, I think we beat Dallas that year who had went to the Super Bowl. Well, we beat two teams that had been in the Super Bowl the year before. So, you know, again, we beat some tough teams my rookie year. Seven and nine wasn't a bad way to finish your rookie year. So you thought things were going to get better. You know, like you say, Michael, some of the draft picks we made, Gary James and some of the guys that we drafted, they didn't pan out. Those guys didn't pan out. So in between us getting buried, it was some futile years, like you're saying. My first year, it was decent. But those next couple of years until we got buried, and even when we first got buried, it was still kind of a struggle. You know, things – you didn't see no light at the end of the tunnel. That's how I would describe until we got buried. Once we got buried, you could see a light at the end of the tunnel. That's the best way to describe when we got Barry Sanders because it turned the whole organization around. It gave you hope. You know what I'm saying? You knew that, okay, we at least got a fighting chance. When we go into this game, we at least got us a weapon that we can at least have a fighting chance with. You know, I think the thing that held Barry down, and it's sad to say more so than any opponent, it was more so our assistant coaches not being innovative and not knowing how to use Barry or being able to use Barry. Think about if uh, Sean McVay or some of these coaches now, Mike Shanahan, I'm sorry, Kyle Shanahan, just think if they had a weapon like a Barry Sanders, some of these play designs and some of the things that they're doing now, oh, my God, man, this guy would flourish. Wouldn't he? He would flourish in some of these offenses. Oh, but we were never that way. Yeah, it would be amazing. But we were never created that way. Think about it. We didn't throw the ball to Barry that much. And Barry could catch. Barry could catch. But, again, we didn't have the, the, the offensive geniuses to use the talent that he had. You know, and, that, and I think that held him back more than anything else. And like I say, more than any opponent. So when he gets there and you see him and you're like, okay, we have a fighting chance every week now. Like how, how do you quickly do you get accustomed to blocking for him and, and really understanding his style? Because I know I talked to the guy who ended up replacing you in Detroit, Ray Roberts last month. And he said it took a little while to like 
figure that out and he kept running into him early on like was it similar for you or yeah so what we did was and that's a great question what we did was i remember it happened one time we were watching film and it happened in practice and i think barry ran up the back of i think it was kevin glover he ran up his back and this was young this was uh first year first year rookie barry and uh, so we brought them in, man, gloves. And we were like, look, B, man, in the pros. And, uh, no, this was the other thing, too. Not only was that, that, one, that happened once, but when he first got there, he would get, he, what he would do is get the ball, then make a move, then try to get to the hole. So we had to sit B down and we, we had to tell him, B, Man, you got to get the ball, be moving towards the hole. Then you can make all the moves you want to. But these holes close up so fast in the pros, it's no way you're going to be able or it's no way we're going to be able to hold these guys long enough for you to get the ball, throw a fake, then start moving towards the hill. So he just kind of had to change that up a little bit, which all you had to do with Barry, just tell him one time, and it would never happen again. So we had to go through that with him. And we also went, like I say, the one time he ran up Kevin Glover's back. And we had to tell him, man, look, that's a that's a no-no. That's a cardinal sin in the NFL. And it should be in college. But that's a cardinal sin for a running back to run up a lineman's back. It's no way. Because that means the running back eyes are closed or he not seeing the holes that he needs to go to. And that's a problem. Man, I, knew, I remember I had to do that when I left Detroit with Leland McElroy. When we drafted him out with the Arizona Cardinals, man, Leland, Leland was running up your back. you like, man, what the hell? What are you looking at? You know, because, man, as a lineman, man, come on, that's the worst thing in the world, Michael. You blocking and somebody stick their helmet in your back because they don't see the hole to go through. So, yeah, man. But like I said, with B, we told him that once. And never have to worry about it again. So with me, my rule was if look, whether I'm front side or back side, I'm gonna stay on my block and block him like Barry coming this way. That's the only thing. And that's what me and Kevin Glover used to do. Because you didn't want to be the guy that stopped blocking and Barry cut it all the way back and your guy tackled him. So we we used to always say we're gonna stay on our block. And then also, we used to always say one of us, one of us line that had to pick Barry up off the ground. Because one, he works too hard for him to have to get up off the ground by himself. So, and two, that means somebody is always around him because guys used to try to do some extracurricular stuff to him under the pile and stuff. So we used to always make sure we was down there, one, to keep guys from doing extra stuff to him. But two to help him up because he's working so hard for us, man. So we, that that man shouldn't have to get up off the ground by himself. But that was just our mentality back then. So I mean, when you you hit on it a little bit earlier, but when you look back now, considering the talent you guys have between Barry and Herman and yourself and Glover and some of the players you all had on defense, why wasn't that era more successful? I'm going to just, I, I, I'm a, I, for me, I think it just comes down to two things for me. One, 
we didn't have the quarterback. We had the quarterback on our rosters. We had the quarterback. Because I think, Michael, I think we could have did what we did with Eric Kramer and Rodney Pete. You know, Rodney's biggest thing was he was just injury prone. He couldn't stay healthy. But Rodney was a good quarterback. Think about some of If you look at Rodney Pete's early numbers that Rodney put up, you know, when he first got in the league, think about it. He was, what, second or third for the Heisman. I think he in his first year, he had some good numbers. I just heard him the other day where he had some really, really good numbers and stuff. If you look at his early numbers. But his problem was he couldn't stay healthy. So you had Eric Kramer there that led us to the NFC Championship game. Eric was a great te uh, technician. Eric was a guy that was smart. You know, he had the nickname of Brass Balls because – he would change the plays. Wayne and them would send in the play, and Eric knew the play wasn't going to be a successful play. He would change the play, and Wayne would get mad. God damn it, Eric, don't change the plays that I call. They'll call another play that Eric didn't like. Eric be in the huddle like, look, I'm changing this play. We're going to run this, this, and this. So we gave him the nickname of Brass Balls because it takes some brass to change, uh, change the coach's plays, but he was like that. We could have won with those two quarterbacks there, you know. And then the other thing was, I don't think, and this from me going to two Super Bowls and winning one, I just don't think coaching, assistant coaching-wise, that we had good enough coaches to help lead us there. I think Wayne could have got us there, but I just think that some of the assistant coaches that he surrounded himself with, you know, I just don't think they, they – I just, quite frankly, I just don't think they were good. I just don't. None of them from our offensive coordinators we had, you know, on down the line. I just don't think we had the good uh, assistant coaches to really get us over the hump to help us get to a Super Bowl. Did you know that at the time, or did that only come no, with hindsight? No, no, no. With hindsight, like I say, until I went to two Super Bowls, I didn't know that. But again, we didn't know that. You, we had what barometer do you have in Detroit for winning? What barometer? You got to go back to the championship games. You don't have a barometer, so you don't have. And again, that comes back to leaders in the locker room, guys that have been in Super Bowls, guys that have had success that can sit there and tell you, man, you need to prepare this way. You need to do this. You need to do that. I didn't have nobody. When I got there, when me and Kevin Glover got there in 85, you know, Keith Dorney was the, the leader of the offensive line back then and stuff. But, you know, Keith only had limited success. He didn't have success. So how, how can he teach you how to prepare, you know, to become a playoff team? Or how could he teach you how to prepare, you know, to, you know, the, the be a dominant team. They, they, he didn't have anybody to learn from. So I didn't have anybody to learn from. So we had to kind of start that tradition. And I guess it started in the 90s, the little tradition that we did have. But I had nobody to learn that from. I'm going to tell you, when I first learned how to really, really practice as a pro was when I went to, my, uh, went to the Pro Bowl and I watched Jackie Slater practice at the age of 37. He was 37 years old out there, and that man was running all, and I was like, oh, my goodness. And I, I asked Jack, I was like, Jackie, you practice like that all the time? He's like, yeah. He's like, you know, and that, that, and again, 
but you got to be around successful people to learn successful things. And unfortunately, it hadn't been that way in Detroit in a long time, Michael. <laughs> so when you decide to, like, you, you leave Detroit after 95, you go to Arizona, was that a tough decision or were you kind of like, I've had enough? No, it was tough. I didn't want to leave. I mean, Detroit didn't. The, the, the long and short of it was Detroit. I think Detroit might have been fed up with me from what I heard later on, you know, because I had the famous guarantee. And I think, you know, that was, remember, that was my last game as a Detroit Lion after the famous Philadelphia 56-34 to 34 loss, a 37 loss. That's why I had my famous guarantee. And, you know, again, with Scott Mitchell, when they brought Scott in, you know, salary cap. So me and Chris Spielman, we became salary cap casualties, even though I tried to work with the Lions. I tried to because I didn't want to go. I had just built my house here. You know, I was well entrenched in the community. You know, this was my 11th year. Like you said, I had been to six straight Pro Bowls. You know, I'm in the community. I'm thinking I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do as a Detroit Lion to where they would want to sign me to a long-term deal. But for whatever reason, you know, that didn't happen here. And like I say, I it got to this point. Arizona called me. They had the offer on the table. And I hesitated so long. Arizona called my lawyer, my agent, and told him that I only had – I had – 24 hours to, to accept the deal or they were taking it off the table. Because, you know, it was, I was hesitating because I wanted to work things out with Detroit and behind the scenes we were trying to get things worked out. But the offer was so ridiculous coming from Detroit. <laughs> it was, I just knew I wasn't going to be here. It was, it was an offer where they didn't really want. You know what I'm saying? That's the – because put it this way, the uh, Ray Roberts that you talked to, they gave him the same money I got from Arizona. He got this, that, you know how much more I made? I think I made $500,000 more than Ray did. That's all, that was the biggest difference between, so if they gave Ray Roberts that, they could have gave me that. But again, I knew from later on, I found out that, you know, it might've been something with the guarantee. And I think, you know, maybe, they had ran their course with me. I don't know, but, you know, it was, it was unfortunate. And believe me, I left kicking the screen. Do you, do you regret making that guarantee now, knowing that that could have maybe had an effect on things? I regret the guarantee because I didn't know it was going to get that big. Oh, my God. But Michael, put it this way. If I was to make that guarantee today, man, like how it spread it, do you know that they had to have security? It was so bad when, I, when we got to Philadelphia. It was a whole bunch of people down in the lobby making a bunch of noise, right, when we got there. The next day when we drove over to the stadium, they were rocking our buses. That's how bad it was. One person had a sign that had my name spelled the long way. It had Loma spelled the long way. It had the L was for uh, loud. The O was for obnoxious. M. You know, they spelled my name out like that. Man, this 12-year-old kid cussed me out so bad while I was warming up. And uh, I had never been cussed out like that. I was like, oh, my God. And his dad was standing right there next to him. I'm like, you let your kid talk like that? 
it was incredible the venom off that guarantee. But you know what happened was I found out from some of the players later on that Ray uh, Ray Rhodes, the head coach, the speech he gave them, he was like, look, Lomas Brown has come in here. He sodomized your wife. He's, uh, he, he was saying that. He was saying that's what it was like, what I said. It was like he sodomized your wife and kids and he this and that. Yeah, some of them guys was telling me that. I was like, oh, my God. He got it. I mean, so them guys were ready to play. So I think that's probably what I regret the most, that it got why I didn't know it was going to be like that. I didn't know it was going to create a, a firestorm like it really created. So, wow. I, yeah, man. I, I mean, it was I, ugly, Michael. It, it was – I had never – I'm telling you, I'm a lonely offensive lineman, and I think I had the whole – put it this back. Put it this way. One of my official visits, you know, because, again, uh, Arizona signed me, but one of my official visits was to the Philadelphia Eagles. And that was one – that next year – that was one of my uh, official visits. I sat there with Loria. I had to meet with Loria. I went to the facility. They did for, uh, physical, everything. Yeah, man. You know what? They didn't sign me. He said that he didn't want to take a chance on the 30th because they had got burnt by a couple of older players a little earlier, you know, not coming in and producing. And that was what he said. He didn't want to take a chance on a 35-year-old player because they didn't know, you know, he, like I said, they had bad experience with a couple other players that they brought in, older guys that didn't pan out. So that's that's another reason, again, that I ended up uh, in Arizona. Because remember, I told you Philadelphia was one of the teams that looked at me coming out at the draft and stuff. So that's why they brought me in, you know, when I became a free agent from the Lions. But again, like I say, the the uh, owner had a bad taste in his mouth from, uh, I guess, some old events earlier. So I just got a couple more questions for you. Actually, three. First is, you've played eighteen. You know, like we were talking about at the top. You played eighteen years. You were a Pro Bowler about half the time. Are you frustrated that you're not getting enough Hall of Fame consideration? Do you feel like you should get more, or are you kind of at peace with what how this has gone? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I do feel like I should get more, but, Michael, I'm at peace with it. And the reason why I'm at peace with it is because this is how my whole career went. Remember I told you, my principal signed me up for football, or I wouldn't have played football. You know how you hear about guys gr gr say they grew up dreaming of playing in the NFL and doing this. And I didn't have those dreams. You know, I, I, I didn't grow up saying that I wanted to get in the NFL. That wasn't a dream of mine. And believe me, I, I love football. My favorite team, you know, I'm a Dolphin, first and all. I love the Dolphins. Like I say, the 72 Dolphins, greatest team ever, only undefeated team, and, and it's going to stay that way. So every time Mercury Morris pops the court, I'm popping it with him because I love the Dolphins. I could damn them name that whole team off, man, because I grew up down there. That was my team. But I had I, I wasn't the guy that said, oh, yeah, I wanted to play football. Like I said, that happened. Like I said, this agent came in and said, you're the 83rd ranked person, you know, in college football. 
you know, I didn't know that. You know what I'm saying? But that that desire that that helped me to work to, you know, become a first round pick with the Lions. You know, a lot of these things they just been happening for me. You know, I've been working hard at them, but some of these things they just happen. And that's when I when I talk to kids, I always tell them, I say, you never know what form your opportunity is going to come in. You never know. Now, if I would have told that man, no, I don't want to play no football. No, that's all right. Don't sign me up. Like I tell them kids, I might not be standing here in front of you guys today, you know, talking to you, you know, as a role model because, you know, because I closed my mind off to the opportunity. So I just say all that to say, if it happens, it's going to be wonderful. And I think if it happens, it's supposed to happen. You know what I'm saying? And it's going to happen in time when it's supposed to happen. So that's how I always look at things. So no, man, you'll never see me like Drew Pearson because they, they got the best of Drew with that, man. They That was wrong how they had Drew there, man. And, you know, so you'll never see me like that, getting upset about it like that, uh, Michael. So – one of the, you were with the Giants in 2000, but you were also with the Giants in 2001, and obviously yes. 9-11 happens then. What was oh. that experience like for you playing for oh. the Giants? I was a senior in college then. I grew up outside New York City, so obviously there are a lot of emotions there for me, but what was that like for you kind of playing football there? I know how important the Giants were to some of the recovery as well. Like, Walk me through that. Oh, man, Michael, that was so surreal, man. Again, as you know, man, we played Denver out in, on Monday night TV out in Denver. So after we lost that game and got back, once we landed at Newark Airport, it was around about 630, the same time. They like they, they timeline that, that some of those hijackers were there at the airport when we landed at the airport and disembarked from there. So – when, normally what I do, man, I'm so wound up after after the game, you know, we I normally just invite some guys over to the room. So my first year with the Giants, Michael, I stayed in Hackensack. I stayed in a hotel the whole year. I didn't get an apartment or anything like that. So I just stayed in a, like a state, you know, a, a state, a extended state hotel for the whole year. So, you know, I was right on the river, you know, right on the uh, river where, where it's at, where you could see over into the – so we came back to the room. It was me. It was Ron Dane. It was uh, two other players. Uh, got, we got to my hotel room. We just round chilling, watching ESPN while they were in the room. So they probably left around maybe like a little before 8, maybe a little after 8, they left. So once they left, I turned my TV from ESPN and put it on the regular channel. And by then, one of the planes had already run into the, the tower. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow. So what I do, I go over to my window, open my window, and I could see the smoke. I could see the smoke. I couldn't see the plane in there, but I could see the smoke coming from um, the tower. So I'm like, wow. You know, and, and you know, right then, they didn't know what happened. They thought a small commuter plane had run into it. So they didn't know. So I went in the restroom and came out maybe like 15, 20 minutes later. And that's when the second plane had run into the other tower. 
So I'm like, oh my goodness. So from that, so what I did was I went to my window and, and lo and behold, it was on it was smoking. So I could see it from my window. So from that point on, I stood at my window until those uh until the towers crumbled. And once they crumbled, you couldn't see anything else because you know all the dust and everything. So I couldn't see over there anymore once they crumbled. But I watched it because then that's when all the reports was coming in. Man, my mom, my dad, my my wife now, everybody was so scared because you know all the phone lines went out. So you couldn't call nobody, you couldn't do anything. And all they knew was it was an attack in New York and they knew I was in New York. So they didn't know what was going on. So, you know, that was scary for my folks until I was able to get in contact with them and let them know I was all right. But Mike, I'm gonna tell you, the, the one thing that I always remember from this thing is the smell. That's the one thing that's trapped in my mind and to be there forever. I had never smelt the smell of dead bodies and iron and sulfite. It was the worst smell that was coming from that site that you ever smelt in your life, man. It was terrible, man. And that's the one thing, you know how they say things that, things that bring a memory to you? The one memory out of the 911 that I have is the smell. And like you say, we were huge in the recovery and trying to help people, uh, trying to help, just help with comforting families because they had a lot of the victims they brought their families' members to practice. I remember that Saturday because they canceled the games that Sunday, but that following week of practice, that Saturday before we left to go play Kansas City, they brought the families of some of those victims out there um, to watch practice and for us to mingle with them. And I remember some of the grief people were telling us because they met with us before we met with them. And they were telling us certain things not to say to them, you know, because it could trigger back memories for them. So it was certain words we had to stay away from when we were talking to them and everything. So, you know, it was just that. But the smell, man, I couldn't, you know, they had us go down to the site and help, you know, pass out water and do things like that. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because the smell, man, it was just, Man, I, like I said, I had never smelled, this had to be burnt flesh. I had never smelled a smell like that in my life, man. That's the one thing out of that. But besides that, besides this too, Michael, everybody that you met in New York knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody. I don't care who you talked to, they were affected, not, maybe not directly, but indirectly, some type of way. Everybody I talked to after that was direct, was was uh, affected by, by that. Like I say, maybe not directly affected, but indirectly, everybody was affected by what happened on September, you know, that 911. Do you, you, I mean, when things are going through the recovery process there and, and kind of, you know, people in New York are rallying a little bit around the sports teams and... Uh, just the aftermath like do you remember that still was and was that when the 
when the families of some of the victims came that Saturday, was that one of the more tougher moments of your career? Yes, it was. That that was dealing with the because it was a lot of kids. It was a lot of kids. Think about it, man. It was a lot of families out there. So it was a lot of kids out there that had lost their moms and dads, you know, and was trying to stay normal. You know, that that was hard. It was hard to be part of. And it was hard to see because of everybody, like I say, that had been affected by that. So that was tough. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, the other toughest thing for me was playing that game that next week. I'm telling you, man, it was that was one of the harder games that I had to play because it was hard to build up anger for that game. You know, it was hard because. You remember how they had all the teams? They cut in on all the teams during the during the uh, the pledge of the you know the Star Spangled Banner. Remember they cut in on all the teams that all fifteen or sixteen teams that did it. And like I say, it was a big emotional thing throughout. And we went to Kansas City. Our next game after they skipped that week. Our next game was in Kansas City. Some of the nicest folks you ever want to meet. I mean, it was hard to get mad and play a game, you know, going up against Neil Smith and all those guys because of what happened pregame, all the dedication, you know, all the pride of being American, you know, and now you're going out here and you got to fight your fellow American. You talked about rallying and uniting with your fellow American against the evil terrorists and now a few minutes later i got to go out here and go up against the guy you wanted me to unite with against these terrorists you see what i'm saying psychologically you know that's what's going through my mind during the game and i had to do everything in my power to keep from crying on the sideline it was so emotional Man, I was about the ball start crying. A couple of our guys did. I remember Tabidi Hill, he started, uh, Hall, he started crying. It was a couple of guys, but I was like, man, I'm getting ready to play a game. I got to be tough. I felt so bad. I'd have been like Ricky Waters. You see Ricky Waters when they always show him how he was balling. That's how I felt on the sideline before that game, man. It was, it was tough, man. I ain't going to be lie to you. That whole week, two weeks, it was tough. So lastly, and kind of just so we don't end this on a very sad note, uh, you ended your career with the Super Bowl, as we were talking about at the top of the show. What was it like to actually go out with a Super Bowl ring? Oh, man, that's the pinnacle. That's the pinnacle, Michael. Look. I played 18 years in the NFL. Anytime kids see me with that ring on, they don't want to know about the 18 years you spent in the NFL and, you know, all the games you played and the Pro Bowls and all that. They want to see the bling bling. It's all about the ring. It's all about it, man. Like I say, man, that, that, that to me, that kind of crowned my achievements. Like, when I look back over my 18-year career, or not even 18 years, I throw in my four years at the University of Florida and my three years at Miami Springs Senior High School. So if I throw them in all together, Michael, I look at all that, man. Look at everything and stuff. And, man, it's like the pinnacle. It's like what I work for. It's like when that man took me back in the auditorium and signed me up 
for uh, for uh, football. You know, everything just comes out because I, I reached the pinnacle. I was able to say that I, I went to the Super Bowl and I won a Super Bowl. I'm a Super Bowl champion. And, you know, I was never able to say that until the last year of my football career. I didn't win in high school. You know, I didn't win in college and stuff. And like I say, it came down to my last year in the pros to win it. And I won it. And that, that, you know, I don't know what else I could say about winning. It means everything to me. And like, to me, it legitimizes me. You know, I know some players say they don't need it, but I needed it. You know, I needed it. So, yeah. Lomas, thanks so much. This was an awesome conversation. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, taking a bit of time to chat. Yeah, man, this was great, man. You do a great job doing this, too, man. You know how to bring the questions out of the big fella. I appreciate it, man. You can follow my guest tonight, Lomas Brown, on Twitter at LomasBrown75. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Rothstein and on Facebook at Michael Rothstein Journalist. You can follow the show at The Michael Rothstein Show as we go along. Well, Kind of take suggestions from you on future guests and also have a little bit more content there as we go. Thanks, as always, to my producers, Stephen Arkinall and David Woodley. Thanks to Blue Wire and Regents Field for hosting this podcast. If you liked what you heard tonight, check out other episodes. But also, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and most of all, listen at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating. Let us know what you think only helps us down the road. And with that, we'll talk to you on Monday.